It is doubtful whether Aurangzeb's religious appeal swayed Muslim nobles to support him or caused Hindu nobles to turn against him. What we can assert, however, is that it did make a difference to the empire and its inhabitants which of the four contenders triumphed. Had Shuja or Murad won, it is likely that they would have followed Shah Jahan's policies with few dramatic changes. Had Dada won, it is likely that a broader political appeal would have marked his reign. Whether he could have sustained this program in the face of a more conservative climate in both the Muslim and Hindu communities is another question that cannot be answered. Instead, Aurangzeb imposed a narrow Islamic character onto the political culture of the empire. It was Aurangzeb's insistence on Islamic exclusivity that shaped imperial policy over the next half century. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion on the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-9, Aurangzeb's Problems. Let's do a quick recap of the previous episode before we get into today's story. Having placed his father under house arrest, Aurangzeb, Prince Aurangzeb, proceeds to get rid of all of his political rivals. Within three years of the start of the fratricidal wars, Aurangzeb's brothers, Murad Baksh, Shah Shuja, and Darashiko are all eliminated. Aurangzeb makes his ascension to the throne official and is officially crowned the Mughal Emperor. He then begins to enact and enforce various Islamic laws, including the jizya and increased taxes on Hindus, and this starts to turn the Hindus of India against Mughal rule. Alright, so with that out of the way, let's discuss the EIC and Bombay. The EIC, that is the East India Company, was continuing to grow in India. As we mentioned in previous episodes, the EIC had factories in Masulipatnam, Madras, and Hughley. And in 1650, they established a new factory in Kasim Bazar along the Hughley River. This now brings us to Bombay, which is now known as Bombay, and which became the second major English settlement in India. The East India Company obtained Bombay through a very interesting chain of events. It all began when the English crown received Bombay as a wedding gift from the Portuguese crown. Basically, in 1661, King Charles II married Catherine of Brangaza, who was a Portuguese princess. As part of her dowry, she received the island of Bombay, spelt B-U-M-B-Y-E, in the port of Tangier. However, there was some confusion there was some confusion in London about where this mysterious island was located. The map that was supposed to show its whereabouts had been lost. So as a result, nobody at the royal court in London, at the English royal court, was really sure where this island of Bombay was situated. So it took a while to resolve this complicated issue, but eventually it was complicated and then the English moved in to gain control of the island. However, someone forgot to inform the Portuguese governor of that island that this was about to take place. 
Since the Portuguese governor of the island of Bombay had not received any orders to hand it over, he refused to hand it over. When the English arrived with 415 men in September of 1662 to claim Bombay, or Bombay as it became known, they were blocked at gunpoint. So it took a whole three years for everything to get sorted out so that the British could finally take over. By then, most of the original 450 men who had come in September of 1662, most of those guys had died from heat and sickness while waiting on a nearby barren island. Nonetheless, the British eventually took over and the island would become very profitable for them. Charles II rented Bombay and the other nearby islands to the EIC for a nominal sum of £10 sterling. Bombay had an excellent natural harbor, and this allowed it to eventually become the EIC's most important naval base in India. Now, I'm going to read a fairly long excerpt about Bombay, but I think it's really important in helping to understand the growing influence of the East India Company around this time. Within 30 years, Bombay had grown to house a colonial population of 60,000 with a growing network of factories, law courts, an Anglican church, and large white residential houses surrounding the fort and tumbling down the slope from Malabar Hill to the governor's estate on the seafront. It even had that essential amenity for any God-fearing 17th-century Protestant community, a scaffold where witches were given a last chance to confess before their execution. It also had its own small garrison of 300 English soldiers, 400 topazes, 500 native militia, and 300 bandaris, club-wielding toddy-tappers, that look after the woods of Cocos. By the 1680s, Bombay had briefly eclipsed Madras as the seat of power and trade of the English in the East Indies. Meanwhile, in London, the company directors were beginning to realize for the first time how powerful they were. In 1693, less than a century after its foundation, the company was discovered to be using its own shares for buying the favors of parliamentarians as it annually shelled out £1,200 a year to prominent MPs and ministers. The bribery, it turned out, went as high as the Solicitor General, who received £218, and the Attorney General, who received £545. The parliamentary investigation into this, the world's first corporate lobbying scandal, found the IC guilty of bribery and insider trading and led to the impeachment of the Lord President of the Council and the imprisonment of the company's governor. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company Let's talk about some of the many rebellions and initial early wars that Aurangzeb had to deal with as he tried to establish his authority over the Mughal Empire. The Aham people, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Aham, Aham, not really sure. The Aham people are originally from China's Yunnan province. They migrated to Indochina and northern Myanmar, also known as Burma, over 2,000 years ago. Their original language has long since disappeared, and they currently speak Assamese. 
The Aham people living in Kuch Bihar, which is a district near the borders of Tibet and China in the east, located in the modern Indian state of West Bengal, the Aham people living in Kuch Bihar took advantage of the Mughal fratricidal war and declared their independence. After his coronation, Aurangzeb sent Mir Jumla and his army to suppress the Aham uprising in Kuch Bihar. Aurangzeb briefly had ambitions of expanding into Chinese territory. However, the army was hindered by heavy rains and floods, and so their supply route got cut off. They also suffered from sicknesses that swept through their ranks. In fact, Mir Jumla, who was already in his 70s at this time, died while returning from this expedition on March 31, 1663. Shaista Khan was later appointed governor of Bengal to replace Mir Jumla, and Shaista Khan went on to battle the Marma, or Mog tribe in what is now known as the Chittagong Hill Tracks. The Chittagong Hill Tracks are located in the Chittagong Division of modern Bangladesh near the Myanmar border. Shaista Khan defeated the Marma tribes and successfully captured Chittagong for the Mughal Empire. Even today, Chittagong is a significant port in present-day Bangladesh and is very important to the Bangladeshi economy. Shaista Khan went on to organize a Mughal naval fleet based in this area, based in, Ch in uh, Chittagong. I'd be careful how I say that. In 1664, Emperor Aurangzeb fell very sick. This led to a flurry of activity among his uh, officials, his man sabdars, his governors and such. Now, some wanted to free Shah Jahan, Emperor Shah Jahan, Aurangzeb's father. He's very much alive. Some wanted to free him and put him back on the throne. Others were plotting to install one of Aurangzeb's sons, either Muazzam, or Akbar, both of whom were contenders. However, on the fifth day, Aurangzeb's health began to improve and he was able to regain control of the situation. Following his recovery, he traveled to Kashmir to further recuperate. His father had done this, a similar thing. But unlike earlier Mughal rulers, Aurangzeb did not like Kashmir. During a visit to Ladakh, which is a region in northern Kashmir, Aurangzeb took this opportunity to establish direct control over that part of the empire. The kingdom located in this region, in Ladakh, was ruled by the Namgyal dynasty, which practiced Tibetan Buddhism. At the time of Aurangzeb, the king of this region was a man named Deldan Namgyal. This name is really difficult to say. Deldan Namgyal submitted to Aurangzeb as a vassal, and he pledged tribute and loyalty to Aurangzeb, and he also was known for constructing a masjid in Leh, that is L-E-H, Leh, the capital of Ladakh, and this masjid, this mosque, was dedicated to Mughal rule. Now, during this time, there was a French philosopher named Francois Bernier, who accompanied Aurangzeb and left a very detailed account of Kashmir. I'm going to read a brief excerpt from one of his writings. I hoped that, as I had survived the heat of Mocha near the Straits of Bab el-Mandel, I should have nothing to fear from the burning rays of the sun in any part of the earth. But that hope has abandoned me since the army left Lahore four days ago. I am indeed no longer surprised that even the Indians themselves expressed much apprehension of the misery which awaited them during the eleven or twelve days' march of the army from Lahore to Bimber, which is situated at the entrance of the Kashmir Mountains. 
I declare, without the least exaggeration, that I have been reduced by the intenseness of the heat to the last extremity, scarcely believing when I rose in the morning that I should outlive the day. This extraordinary heat is occasioned by the high mountains of Kashmir. For being to the north of our road, they intercept the cool breezes that would refresh us from that quarter at the same time that they reflect the scorching sunbeams and leave the whole country arid and suffocating. But why should I attempt to account philosophically for that which may kill me tomorrow? Francois Bernier, Travels in the Mughal Empire So those are some problems that Aurangzeb was dealing with Meanwhile, in the Deccan region, Shivaji, the son of Shahaji, had been managing his father's estate in Pune. Shahaji, I'm going to just give you a quick background of Shahaji. Shahaji was our old friend Malik Ambar's trusted lieutenant. After Malik Ambar died, Shahaji continued to operate in the deep south, specifically in Bangalore, mostly working for the sultans of Bijapur, though he was eventually exiled to the south by the Mughals. During the Deccan expedition, when Aurangzeb had been sent there by his father as the governor of the Deccan back during the days of Shah Jahan, Shivaji had submitted to the Mughals. However, as soon as Aurangzeb left for the fratricidal wars to see about his father's illness, Shivaji went back to raiding not only the Mughals, but also the Bijapur Sultanate. In 1659, Adil Shah, the Sultan of Bijapur, sent this large army of 12,000 soldiers under his general named Afzal Khan to suppress Shivaji's activities. The two rulers, the two commanders, the two generals, uh, Afzal Khan and Shivaji, they agreed to meet one-on-one, both unarmed, to try and resolve the issue peacefully. So while Afzal Khan, he adhered to the agreement, he kept his promise and he came unarmed, Shivaji, the Maratha commander, Shivaji secretly wore a metal claw on his hand. So as Afzal Khan, the general for the Bijapur Sultanate, as he he tried to embrace or hug Shivaji, Shivaji quickly swiped at him with this tiger claw, this metal claw on his hand that ripped open Afzal Khan's belly. And, of course, he died from those wounds. Then the Maratha soldiers who had been hiding in the bushes rushed forward and attacked and defeated the Bijapur army. This event basically established Shivaji's reputation as a cunning and fearless guerrilla warrior. And following this victory, Shivaji went on to add even more territory to his domain. Meanwhile, Sultan Adil Shah of the Bijapur Sultanate, he sent another army, this time led by a man named Sidi Johar, to bring Shivaji under control, but Sidi Johar also failed to defeat the Marathas. Finally, Sultan Adil Shah decided to personally take command of his army and lead them into battle on his own. And he did manage to finally defeat Shivaji in multiple confrontations and recaptured a lot of the territory that he had lost to the Marathas. But then, at a critical juncture, just when he was really starting to gain momentum, the guy that he had originally selected to lead the army for him, Sidi Johar, he revolted against the Bijapur Sultanate. So Sultan Adil Shah was forced to 
cease his campaign against the Marathas and head back home to deal with this uprising. In the meantime, Shivaji's father, Shahaji, the one who was the lieutenant for Malik Ambar, he was called in to negotiate a peace treaty on behalf of the Sultan uh, Adil Shah with Shivaji, with Shahaji's son. Eventually, Shivaji agreed to honor the peace agreement that his father brokered between the two sides. However, things would change when Shahaji passed a few years later in 1664. However, for now, Shivaji has an agreement with the Bijapur Sultanate, so he shifts his focus towards the Mughals. At this point of time, Aurangzeb had appointed his uncle, Shaista Khan, as the governor of the Deccan. Now, just so we get our, our times correctly. Now, Shaista Khan was the brother of Mumtaz Mahal. That's the lady in the Taj Mahal. When we mentioned earlier that Shaista Khan became the governor of, the, of Bengal, he did not become the governor of Bengal until 1664. So Mir Jumla died in March 1663, but Shaista Khan did not become the governor of Bengal until 1664. So at the time that Shivaji begins to change his focus towards the Mughals, it is April 1663, around the time that Mir Jumla died, but Shaista Khan is still the governor of the Deccan and had not taken over as the governor or subadar of the Bengal just yet. All right, so now with that out of the way, on April 5th, 1663, Shivaji and some of his followers infiltrated the Mughal camp, and their intention was to assassinate Shaista Khan. Shaista Khan survived the attack, but he was injured, and his son, Abul Fat and several servants lost their lives in the attack. Shivaji and his gang managed to escape unharmed. The next day, the Mughals attacked the Maratha fort of Sengad, just south of Pune, but the Marathas drove the Mughal army off. With this defeat, Aurangzeb recalled Shaista Khan and replaced him with his own son, Prince Muazzam. Prince Muazzam is going to play a big role probably in the next couple of episodes, so keep that name in mind. Muazzam was not very effective either. The Marathas continued to launch surprise attacks on the Mughals at every chance they got. They attacked Hajj pilgrims at sea, they attacked Mughal trade convoys, they attacked Mughal military outposts. They were just running a number on the Mughals in this part of, the, of India, in the Deccan. In January 1664, Shivaji raided and looted the strategic port of Surat. Aurangzeb, very frustrated with them by this time, sent Raja Jai Singh and Dalar Khan to deal with Shivaji. Together, they brought massive forces against Shivaji's Maratha marauders. This was a little bit too much for Shivaji. He wasn't ready for all this, and he finally surrendered and signed the Treaty of Purandar in 1665. In the treaty, he agreed to surrender 23 of his forts, pay reparations of 4 million gold coins, and he also had to send his son Sambaji to reside at the Mughal court. And finally, Shivaji joined the Mughal forces in their fight against the Bijapur Sultanate. This is kind of weird. I don't know why Aurangzeb did this one. I'm sure he had the logic in his mind, but this was a a strange deal to make with Shivaji after so many people had been killed by him and his Maratha marauders. Anyway, so Shivaji, now he is serving the Mughals, and the Mughals are fighting against the Bijapur Sultanate, who, by the way, are Muslims. 
Nevertheless, Shivaji proved himself to be a very capable commander. He was good at what he did. He led attacks on various regions and conquered several parts of the Bijapur Sultanate. Now, this is my, I guess, criticism of Aurangzeb, and I have a few, but this one here, with the Treaty of Parandar, the Maratha threat was temporarily removed, but once again, Aurangzeb did not deal with them decisively. He could have just dealt with Shivaji once and for all, and perhaps, maybe not, but perhaps it would have calmed the Maratha threat down for a little while, but... Once again, he didn't, and once again, it's going to come back and bite him, especially when he's using the Marathas against other Muslims. It's just, I don't know, it just didn't look, doesn't look good. Anyway, so Aurangzeb is still dealing with problems in the Deccan. Now, as I mentioned, he wanted to deal with, he wanted to conquer the Sultanate of Bijapur. So he sent a large Mughal army led by Jai Singh with Shivaji by his side to go and conquer Bijapur. Jai Singh, by the way, was the son of Rajaman Singh, and Rajaman Singh had once fought against um, Emperor Akbar back in the day. Initially, the Mughals achieved some success against the Bijapur Sultanate, but they were not able to completely defeat them. The Bijapur Sultanate received assistance from the Golconda Sultanate, and on the 5th of January 1666, Jai Singh ordered a retreat and... This was a disaster. As the Imperial Mughal army retreated, the Bijapur forces pursued them and inflicted heavy losses. Aurangzeb recalled Jai Singh and once again sent his son Prince Muazzam to carry out the war. However, Aurangzeb was happy with Shivaji's performance. As we mentioned, he did capture several part of the Bijapur Sultanate during this, during this campaign. So Aurangzeb sent Shivaji a jeweled, a jeweled sword and an invitation to attend the court. Now, Shivaji was naturally and rightfully scared that once he arrived at the court, Aurangzeb was going to uh, inflict some sort of harm on him. But Jai Singh, the general who had failed in the overall uh, campaign against the Bijapur Sultanate, Jai Singh convinced Shivaji to accept the invitation, and Shivaji did. This is the weird thing about Shivaji. He was upset about the treatment that he received when he arrived at the royal court in 1666. It seemed as if Shivaji was expecting some sort of grand and uh, pompous ceremony to congratulate him or welcome him to the royal court. I don't know what he expected, but what he received did not meet those expectations. Aurangzeb basically ignored him. So I think Shivaji probably thought he was uh, closer to the emperor than he really was, maybe because he had already had two peace treaties with him. He had fought him when he was a governor. That is when Aurangzeb was a governor of the Deccan. Who knows? But whatever the case, Shivaji was not happy with the way he was treated at the Mughal royal court. They treated him fine. He just expected more. So he was dissatisfied with the rank, the mansab, which is 5,000. That's the number of cavalry and soldiers given to him. But this was a standard. This was a standard that the Mughals always gave to their vanquished enemies. But Shivaji, in his mind, he felt he deserved more. So feeling insulted and pouty, he eventually left the court and didn't accept any of the gifts that Arangzad had prepared for him. 
these gifts, these imperial gifts from the emperor of the largest empire on the Indian subcontinent. These included an elephant, a robe, and various jewels. But now it was Aurangzeb's turn to be insulted. Aurangzeb was offended and insulted by Shivaji's offensive and insulting behavior. So he had him put under house arrest. Aurangzeb is good with this house arrest thing. He had Shivaji put under house arrest. Now, when I say under house arrest, he was under house arrest in the royal palace, not in his own home. So Shivaji was basically a prisoner at the royal court. Anyway, after three months in captivity, Shivaji escaped in August 1666. And according to the story, he was smuggled out along with his son. Remember, his son was kept as a hostage to ensure his good behavior. Shivaji and his son were, were smuggled out of the royal court by hiding in a basket of sweets that were meant for the temple. Once he was out, he returned to his realm, and he had been gone for nine months by this time, so he finally returned to his own region down in the Deccan in November 1666. And from that point on, Shivaji and his successors, Shivaji and the Marathas, would pose a significant challenge for the Mughals. Aurangzeb should have taken care of this guy when he had the chance. But he couldn't because there was so much growing unrest in the empire. And we're going to talk about this as we go through this episode, inshallah. Aurangzeb just could not afford to launch a new campaign against uh, Shivaji and the Marathas just now. For one thing, the Mughals were dealing with a rebellion in Afghanistan and a Sikh rebellion in the Punjab at the same time. We're going to talk about both of them soon. Just, just be patient with me. So... Despite the fact that these two leaders, Aurangzeb and Shivaji, had insulted each other, besides the fact that they had been fighting for so long, they decided to sign a new treaty. So the Mughals signed a new treaty with Shivaji in March 1668, and this lasted for all of two years until 1670. But this treaty, that only lasted for about two years, this treaty between the Mughals and the Marathas recognized Shivaji as the Raja of Maharashtra, gave him estates in Birar. Shivaji's son, Sambaji, was given the Manasab of 5,000, and most of his captured forts were returned to him. This is one of the strange things I don't really understand. I mean, I get it. I know Aurangzeb's hands were tied. Shivaji is causing so much damage down in southern India, central and southern India. He's causing so much damage. He's causing all of these problems, and Aurangzeb goes and makes him stronger. Even after Shivaji had broken promises, had led raids, had changed his mind about certain things, after the way he acted at the royal court, I don't, I don't really get it. I understand he had a lot of soldiers under his command, but I just don't understand the thinking behind this leniency that Aurangzeb was showing to Shivaji. Anyway. Moving on, Shivaji signed similar treaties with the Bijapur and Golconda Sultanates, and during this peaceful period, about two years or so, and I say peaceful from Shivaji's perspective, not for the Mughals, they were fighting like crazy, but from Shivaji's perspective, during this period of time, he quietly prepared for war. His intention was to drive the Muslims out of that part of India. His intention was to establish a Hindu Raj in India with his capital at Raigar. When I say drive the Muslims out of India, I don't mean that he meant to like 
do genocide on the Muslims or anything like that. He wanted to, draw, to drive the Muslim rulers out of India and establish Hindu rule. I'll read you more about his uh, personal life in a few moments, but all in all, from what I can understand, Shivaji was not necessarily anti-Muslim or anything like that. Be that as it may, in 1670, and once these two years were up, once the, uh, once the two years were up and he had felt himself strong enough, Shivaji renewed the hostilities against the Mughals and launched a series of surprise attacks. I mean, the speed and the quickness that Shivaji and the Marathas were moving was just embarrassing for the Mughals. I mean, they captured so many forts from the Mughals, including Singar, Purandar, Mahuli, Karnal, Logar. They also attacked and plundered Surat yet again. But Aurangzeb, he was too preoccupied with the Afghan revolt in the northwest to do anything about the Marathas in the south. We're going to discuss the Afghan revolt a little bit more in the next episode, inshallah. But still, Aurangzeb's hands were tied. He was just too busy. So Shivaji, he continued. He just extended his conquests even further south. So between 1676 and 1680, Shivaji captured forts in Valor and Jinji. Valor is 80 miles west of Chennai, which is the modern name of Madras. And Valor is located in the modern Indian state of Tamil Nadu, hope I got that right, which is on the far southeastern tip of India. Jinji, on the, on the other hand, is about 50 miles south of Valor and is also in Tamil Nadu. Anyway, Shivaji conquered a significant portion of the crumbling Hindu, kin, Hindu kingdom known as Vijayanagar. We spoke about it briefly in the previous season. I don't want you to think that Shivaji was just some crazy guerrilla warrior. He actually knew how to run a kingdom. He actually wasn't all that bad at running a kingdom. He built a very resilient and functioning administration. It's outside of the scope of this uh, podcast to really talk about it in depth. But I can tell you that he was actually a fairly effective leader in just being fair. And he allowed the Marathi kingdom to become a true kingdom and a true regional power. Shivaji finally died in 1680. He wasn't that old, only about 50 years old. And he died from sickness, not from battle or anything like that. But anyway, he died before he could confront Aurangzeb again. And his son, Sambaji, succeeded him as the ruler of the Marathas. At the time of his death, Shivaji's territories consisted of a narrow coastal strip of land that covered much of the western Ghats from Surat in the north to Goa in the south. I'm going to have to ask you to just look at a map if you're not sure where these are. Now, I'll talk about the Western Ghats in just a moment, probably before this episode ends, inshallah. Now, the following excerpt that I'm about to read to you describes Shivaji and his capabilities as a leader. In my opinion, this excerpt paints really too pretty of a picture of Shivaji because Shivaji, his raids were devastating and they were destructive. But still... I do, wanna, I do want you to get a, a different side, a different perspective on Shivaji. Shivaji would have been little more than a marauder had it not been for his nobility of character and indisputable strategic and political genius. Like Aurangzeb, his formidable opponent, he was a deeply pious man and led an austere personal life. But unlike Aurangzeb, he was not a bigot. He would never vandalize any sacred building or artifact. He had many Muslim soldiers and officers in his employ for whom he had a mosque built opposite his own palace. Wherever he went, 
he would seek the companionship of Hindu and Muslim holy men. He was ruthless and violent, no doubt, but he was not a savage. He would often hold rich people for ransom, but women and children, be they Hindu or Muslim, were never molested. Neither were farmers, crops, or animals harmed. He was highly intelligent and an excellent judge of people, and the lands under his direct administration, as opposed to the regions he merely raided, were governed with justice and efficiency. Dirk Collier, The Great Mughals and Their India Me personally, I think that this description, while much of it is probably true, I think is a little bit too heavy-handed in, uh, in dumping praises on Shivaji. Some of the attacks that he led, especially the way he did Surat, some of those things were brutal. They were, they were very savage, despite what this author says. The Western and Eastern Ghats, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, Ghats, G-H-A-T, Ghat, Ghat. The Western and Eastern Ghats are two mountain ranges that run along the Western and Eastern sides of India, obviously. The Western Ghats are also known as the Sayadri Range. They stretch from Gujarat to Kerala, and they act as a barrier that catches the monsoon winds. This results in heavy rainfall for this region. The Western Ghats are known for its lush forests, its rich biodiversity, and for providing water to various major rivers. The Eastern Ghats run from Odisha to Tamil Nadu. They have a slightly lower elevation than the Western Ghats, and they are not as continuous as the Western Ghats. Both mountain ranges, however, do carry much significant cultural importance. They have been home to various ancient trade routes, there are many historical temples and architectural wonders to be found in both of them. Shah Jahan, the former deposed emperor of the Mughal Empire, lived for eight years under house arrest. He had been made a prisoner by his own son, Emperor Aurangzeb. During this period of time, these eight years, during this time, Aurangzeb never spoke to his father and he never visited him. As we mentioned earlier, the relationship between father and son had deteriorated many years earlier. I'm going to read you another excerpt. An experienced military commander and administrator, Aurangzeb served as governor of the Mughal Deccan for eight years, as governor of Gujarat for three years, and then as commander of Mughal armies in the invasion of Bakh and the first two sieges of Kandahar Fort. Despite his devoted and able performance in these offices, Aurangzeb's relationship with his father was acrimonious and distant. Shah Jahan, encouraged by Darashiko and Jahanara, rebuked his least favorite son frequently, and often unfairly, for a variety of shortcomings. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire so we've already discussed Aurangzeb's relationship with his father in previous episodes. We saw how it began to deteriorate after the, um, the failed siege at Kandahar and also the little petty things that Dadashiko did to make things even worse. Anyway, during this period of time that uh, Shah Jahan was under house arrest in Agra, he had very little contact with the outside world. Everything he did was controlled by Aurangzeb, and the only source of comfort, the only solace that Shah Jahan had was his, was his daughter, Jahanara. 
She took care of him in his final days, though he was allowed to spend time with his concubines and his wives. He was an emperor, by the way, so he had a whole, a whole bunch of them. But otherwise, he was not allowed any visitors. During these final years, Shah Jahan devoted himself to studying the Qur'an. Now, Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb did communicate by letter. Aurangzeb never came to visit his father after that first time when he discovered a plot to assassinate him. During this period of time, the father and the son did communicate by letter, but these were often angry and bitter exchanges between them. But over time, Shah Jahan became more devout, and he just really just focused on studying Islam. However, his son, the Emperor Aurangzeb, he forbade his father, he forbade Shah Jahan from teaching the Qur'an to children. And apparently this was intended to deprive Shah Jahan of having even the smallest amount of control and respect that a teacher might receive from his students. On the 22nd of January, 1666, Shah Jahan passed away while listening to the recitation of the Qur'an. This is very similar, in fact, to the death of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. He died also in a similar way, um, around just after Salat al-Fajr, while listening to a Qadi recite the Qur'an. Anyway, if you want to listen to that series, of course, go subscribe to Islamic History Exclusive. The following morning... Shah Jahan was laid to rest at the Taj Mahal right beside his beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal. It was a very simple funeral and what should not come as any surprise to us, Aurangzeb did not attend. Another sad aspect of this story is that Aurangzeb and his father, Shah Jahan, they never saw each other ever since that bitter departure that bitter departure between the two back in 1652 when Aurangzeb failed to recapture Kandahar. And we had already previously mentioned Shah Jahan's love for his wife, who was buried at Taj Mahal. Uh, Mumtaz Mahal is her name. She was buried at Taj Mahal. Throughout his captivity at the Agra Fort, he would gaze upon her tomb. He would look upon her tomb, and he, he could see the, the uh, Taj Mahal from where he was kept in prison, in his quarters at Saman Burj. In fact, there is a picture that I found strikingly, I don't know how to put it, I don't say sad, but just, I don't know, I know how to put it, but it just, it just hit, hit me in a way. <laughs> but it's a picture, and it was, it's not contemporary to Shah Jahan, it was painted like in the early 1900s. But it's a picture of Shah Jahan on his deathbed. He's an old man, bald head, white beard, and he's laying in his bed covered in a quilt, and he's looking across the river to the Taj Mahal and his daughter, or there's a woman nearby his feet, most likely it's his daughter, um, Jahanara, or could have been a servant, who knows. But the way he's looking, knowing that he's going to die, looking across the river at the Taj Mahal, I don't know, it just hit me hard. It's just a reminder of death, reminder of regrets of life and things like that that we all have as we grow older. It was just a very poignant picture to me. I don't want to belabor anything or make it seem to be more than what it was. But if you want to take a look at it, um, go to islamichistorypodcast.com slash 9-9. That's because this is season 9, episode 9. So islamichistorypodcast.com slash 9-9. You might have seen it before if you are a fan of uh, Indian or Mughal history. You might have seen it before. And maybe it might not hit you the same way it hit me. But I don't know. It caught me in the feels. Right, I did mention that I wanted to talk about the 
the Afghan and Sikh revolts, but I'm going to have to wait until next episode for that one. Also, I don't know if I will have an episode available for next week. I It is a Thanksgiving weekend for us in the United States, and I don't know if I will have the opportunity to sit down and record something before then. But if not, inshallah, I will definitely have something the week after that. In the next episode, we'll see how the Marathas and the Deccan and southern India are becoming an even bigger threat to Aurangzeb's empire, but we will also discuss the various revolts that Aurangzeb has to deal with in other parts of the empire, the Afghans, the Sikhs, and so forth and so on. It's going to be a lot. Inshallah, we'll talk about it in the next episode. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Saroj for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Afghanistan Season 1, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. This season, we are discussing the Soviet-Afghan War, and this is Episode 1-9. So before we get into talking about the Stinger missiles and how they changed the war, let's look at the political situation in the Soviet Union real quick. So it's February 1986. Mikhail Gorbachev, the Secretary General of the Communist Party, making him basically the leader of the Soviet Union, is giving a speech to the Communist Party in Moscow where he labels the war in Afghanistan a bleeding wound. A few months later, in April 1986, Gorbachev begins an anti-corruption campaign. He uses this campaign to remove several people within the Communist Party who were blocking his reforms. This allowed Gorbachev to become more politically powerful, made him stronger politically, and allowed him to move forward with changing the Soviet society and trying to bring this war to a close. 
The Soviet Union under Gorbachev was also working on improving relations with the United States and the United Kingdom. In doing so, he eased up on many of the repressive Soviet policies that had been that had been in place for so many years. You see, Gorbachev knew what the CIA and the United States and the United Kingdom did not know. The Soviet Union was nearing economic collapse. They were being crushed under the weight of maintaining this massive military and trying to keep up with the United States in the Cold War. The Soviet military was taking up nearly a quarter, nearly 25% of his GDP. And much of that was going into Afghanistan. Meanwhile, the people within the Soviet Union barely had enough to eat. Gorbachev believed that he could still save the Soviet Union. He believed he could save the USSR with the right reforms, but he also believed that the the war in Afghanistan was holding him back. It was holding the Soviet Union back because they had to continue supporting the occupation. And so he wanted to get this thing over with as quickly as possible. But of course, when it comes to politics, you always have opponents. And the Politburo, they resisted Gorbachev's attempts to end the war quickly. They were more concerned about saving face. They were hoping for some sort of political situation, sort of political solution in Afghanistan because they wanted to avoid being humiliated on the world stage and being forced to withdraw from this third world nation. Nonetheless, Mikhail Gorbachev was adamant that as of 1986, the war had to end within two years. And this was pretty good timing on Gorbachev's part because towards the end of 1986, around September 1986, the Stinger missiles were starting to come into Afghanistan. In fact, on September 26, 1986, the first stingers were used in the Soviet-Afghan war. As a matter of fact, this was the first time stingers were ever used in combat. You heard that right. The first time stinger missiles were ever used in combat was in the Soviet-Afghan war. A man, a mujahid, which is singular for mujahideen, a mujahid named Engineer Rafar of Hezbi Islami had the honor of being the first man to use the stinger in combat. I'm going to read an excerpt from the book Charlie Wilson's War by George Cryl, which describes this first successful stinger attack. Now bear in mind, this book, Charlie Wilson's War, it is written for Western readers, so keep that in mind, all right? So it does sound a little condescending and maybe even overly dramatic, but it still is a very good read. So here goes. Quotes. Gaffar stood proudly in the tradition of his Afghan ancestors. It was about 3 p.m. on September 26, 1986, when he and his men approached the Jalalabad airfield. They moved in closer to the landing zone than the ISI trainers, running off the CIA target studies, had specified. Until this moment, 
The three-man crews that flew the Hines had never really known fear. Never in the six years of the war. They could kill at will and no one could kill back. But now, preparing to pierce that invulnerability, Engineer Gafar sighted his shouldered weapon and he and his fellow soldiers looked out near dusk at four Hines flying into Jalalabad. There was one thing more. Something the instructors had not taught the Afghans, but that none ever forgot. As the missile rocketed past Gafar's eyes at 1,200 miles per hour, he uttered the cry of the faithful, Allahu Akbar, God is great. But now, the engineer's faith was put to the test. Because the stinker had misfired and three of the hinds were closing in. It was now just a matter of seconds before the contest between Engineer Gaffar and the three Soviet helicopters closing in on him was resolved. The first stinger had given away their precise location and the gunships were now turning to finish them off. But, in the words of George Patton, wars are fought with weapons but won by men. Gaffar rose to the occasion and, seizing a second grip stock and issuing the same cry to his god, he fired the second stinger and suddenly in the sky over Jalalabad, the stake finally ripped through the heart of the beast. The hind was suddenly just a broken toy, drifting down from the sky and from beside Gaffar had come a second and third cry to Allah and now it was not just one but three hinds splintered to destruction before their eyes. God was indeed great.